Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. I've got a guest back called Connor Nolan who has written a book called Normal about his life and battle with anorexia. Now, uh, you would have heard that podcast that was a while back. Um, and then we've also had a second um, podcast with Connor, which was a little while ago. So this is his third podcast. I think we're doing another one a bit later on. So um, let's say hello to Connor. How are you, Connor? Good, good. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, lots of good feedback about your first podcast and some on your second one. So it's been really good. It's been really well received. Lovely. Good stuff. Great stuff. So let's hope the book sales give you a Absolutely. nice bank account. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so we've covered anorexia. And what did we cover in the last one? I think it we was body. The, there was a bit about that and it was about um, ambition as well and kind of ah, mindset. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my gym journey and all that stuff. Yeah. Ah, yeah. yes, yes, yes. That's right. Okay. So today we're going to talk about your depression. Was your depression from the anorexia or something different? The depression happened a lot later in life. I'd say I was around 19 at this stage. Um, yep. I was just finished my first year of college. And I suppose one thing that happened to me when I went to college was I had this idea, you know, that far off fields are greener. You know, I thought that when I was in school, I thought when I go to college, I'll be happy and my life be brilliant and all this sort of crack. And I initially sort of struggled with being away from home, you know, that, yep. that uh, initial change, but I eventually did settle in in Galway and I met some great people, but I, I struggled with my mental health when I came to college. And one thing that happened was I found myself battling with, I think it's called intrusive thoughts. I think it's something oh, yeah. that's, it's a, I think it's a symptom of, of anxiety or maybe OCD as well. I found what happened was, I had gotten, like I mentioned in the previous podcast, I got in a scholarship and I had this new life ahead of me and things had unfolded brilliantly and I, I was very happy with how things were. Yeah. And I had this fear that something would cause this new life to be ruined. I felt as if things were too good to be true. I think that's a bit of an Irish kind of outlook that, oh, you know, that it'd be just my luck now that this will all fall apart. No, it's not. Uh, it's, it's, it's everywhere around the world. I mean, I even have that at some stages. I think, oh my God, this podcast is going so well. Um, something's got to go wrong. And, you know, so we all think yeah. like that. You're, you're almost kind of hunting for something to happen. And, and yeah. it's, so I, I found myself in that train of thought, what's going to ruin this? What's going to mess this up? So I found myself having, I found myself being very worried all the time. I worried that I would fail an exam or fail a class. I was afraid to miss a single lecture for fear that I would be, you know, my attendance would be uh, unsatisfactory. Yep. Um, I was worried that, something would happen in the apartment I was in. It would go on. Like when I was leaving the house, I would turn off every plug. I was afraid it would go on fire. I was so afraid of all these things happening that I had no reason to worry about. And I found myself battling terribly. I'd say from the October when I started college up until I'd say the December or January, every hour of the day I found myself worrying. And how I coped with that, and I really don't recommend this to anyone, I didn't open up about it. I kind of felt as if, it was a silly thing to have wrong. So I didn't really open up to anyone about it. Yeah. And I found myself, I listened to music. That's how I sort of drowned it out. Right. I listened to music and I listened to radio stations most hours of the day. And it eventually subsided. But the thing with mental health is, you know, if it, if it came to bite me, it, there was, you know, it was going to come and bite me again. You know, my mental health was deteriorating, I suppose. And I was trying to ignore it. Yeah. So they did, they, they, they Intrusive thoughts did kind of stop, like I said, into the January, into the new year. And I, you know, I felt okay. 
And what happened then was towards the end of my first year of college, I was in a relationship at the time and that began to fall apart. Right. We were, I suppose, long distance was becoming a, a difficult um, endeavor. Yeah. My girlfriend at the time, she was meant to come to the same college as me and then plans changed. So a breakup became inevitable and that completely, I suppose, it was very tough for me to deal with. And I, I could, I knew that the worst was going to come and I was, I, I, I could see myself spending the rest of my life with this person. So that was very hard to deal with. So that was kind of the final straw. Well, I guess like it was also like your security as well, because you were going yeah. to the university with your partner and then all of a sudden that changes. Yeah, well, well, she's actually, she was the year behind me. She was meant to be coming to that same university the following year and then yeah. plans changed. So I, I, I was like, okay, no, the worst is going to come. This is going to end and I'm going to be in bits. So now I had the fear of this relationship ending. So the, 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 the cloud hanging over us made things more difficult and we ended up breaking up around the end of my first year of college. And that, that really broke me. And I think that's, that's what really, I suppose, got the ball rolling with the depression. I think there was a lot more to it, but that was the all that broke the camel's back. Well, it actually sounds like uh, everything was compacting down on you and because you were having these thoughts um, and you couldn't control them, um, it it just all sort of kept pressing pressing you down further and further. Absolutely. And there's a thing in my book, I I call it, um, I actually call it the Avicii concept. Around around that time, the the very famous Avicii had died. And I remember people, he had died, he had taken his own life. And I remember people saying, you know, how can a man so wealthy and, you know, a man who had everything, how could he take his own life? And I remember it's a very scary thought, but I remember thinking to myself, I kind of understand because a year previous to this, I had wanted a scholarship. I had wanted to go to college. I had wanted my first car. And I now had all of these things and more. I had, a, I, had a no, I had nothing. I wanted for nothing at this point in my life. And I was in a very, very dark hole. I was in a very, very bad place. So I, I kind of, I kind of, I said, you know what? I get it. Yeah. I can't, I can't, not to, not, I say book, not to compare myself to, to a global superstar, but I kind of get how it feels to have everything you wanted and feel very, very empty inside. So I found myself in a, in a very dark hole and there was, this would have been around the middle of 2018. It would have been around May or June time. And there was about two months where I didn't say a word. I bottled it up and I, I thought, you know, okay, I'll, maybe I'm just heartbroken. I'll, I'll get through this. I'll get over this. But there was a lot more, like I said in the previous podcast, I hadn't opened up to friends about my anorexia yet. I hadn't yeah. come to terms with the, with the bullying from my past so much. There was so much that I hadn't properly dealt with or, you know, or gotten past. And like you say, about pressing down all of this stuff. And like you said, the thoughts from before, it all came to the boil and yeah. I just broke. So there was a number of weeks where I was just in a very, very dark place. I was, I was working in a bar at the time and I'd be driving home late at night and I'd be in tears in my car almost every night. And I, and I didn't know... I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know why I felt the way I did. You know, I was so confused. And there came a night, and, and I call this the night that saved my life. I was in a pub with friends of mine. And uh, we were all just sitting in a beer garden having a few drinks. And there were a couple of friends of mine, a couple of my female friends. They were having, I suppose, a couple of problems of their own. Yeah. And they began, they began opening up. And then I, I began talking to them. And then I began opening up. And then everything just came out about my breakup and about stuff from my past. It all just flooded out. Yeah. And I found, I suppose my friends, they were, they took something from it as in when I told my story, then they told theirs. And there was, there was one, there was one girl that evening, we had a conversation for, I'd say about five or six hours. And she was able to take things from my conversation, from my story. And I could take things from hers. And it showed me that, like I said before, we all have a cross to bear, but we can all learn something from each other's stories. 
yeah. there's great power in relatability. When you find someone who's gone through something similar to you, you know, or you, you hear someone's problem, you can use the lessons from your own life to help them. And it was a moment where I realized that all that I've gone through, my anorexia and, and the breakup I've gone through and the bullying I've gone through in my earlier years, as bad and all as that was, I was able to use those lessons to speak with other people and help other people. Yeah. And I found this, this great sense of meaning, this great sense of, I talk a lot in my book about purpose. And I found this overwhelming sense of purpose that evening. And I'll, and I'll never forget it till the day I die. And I say in my book that that was a night that, that really saved me. And it, and it, without me knowing it, it pointed me in the direction of my book and it pointed me in the direction of, of what I do now in terms of mental health advocacy. And I didn't even realize it, but that's, that's the one night that shows me that when you open up to those around you, your life can be saved and your life can be changed. That, that really is a night I will always remember. Yeah. And it, it is true, isn't it, as well, that the experiences you go through actually prepare you for the new things to come. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, you know, um, and I don't know if I've said this to you, but I've spoken to other uh, people who've been on the show as well, uh, about this, is that people who study psychology and have been working in the field or volunteering in the field have a better understanding. And also as they're older, there are some people that go through and become psychologists at like 20, 21 and they know all the theory, but they've had no life experience. Whereas yeah. for you coming into it, if you were a psychologist, you've got all this wealth of knowledge about anorexia, bullying, you know, so you've lived what you would be talking to people about. And I think that's one of the, the major things with counsellors, psychologists, social workers. If you've been through rough times, you can empathise and um, be compassionate when you hear other people's stories. Absolutely. It's actually, it's the first line of my book before the first chapter starts. There's a small, um, a small section where I say, my father always told me that experience is the best teacher. Yeah. And I say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a young guy. I'm not a mental health professional, but these are lessons I've learned from my own life. So that's yeah. kind of a, it's like a disclaimer at the start of my book where I say, I'm not qualified to discuss this. I, you know, I don't have the, the, the degree and all that, but this is all coming from the heart. And that, that's the place was where I'm speaking from. But you are qualified in a way because you've had that lived experience and, you know, uh, you could go and see a psychologist who's learnt about anorexia, but they're only talking about what they've learned. They're not talking from living through that experience. And I think yeah. living through any experience, if you're seeing a client or you're talking about that issue, you're bringing with it relevant information that other people can't give, you know, a, a psychologist or counselor can say, okay, so this is what anorexia is, A, B, C, and D. That's what they've learned in a book. Whereas you can say, like, you might not have that terminology that they have, but you have, well, this is what happened to me and this is how I lived and this is how I got through and this is what my parents did. And, you know, so you've got all those steps that someone could really relate to you in because they'd be going through the same issue. Absolutely. As, like you say, it's been able to empathize and, and you're almost, you know, you remember being in their shoes and there's, there's a great sense of perspective from that. And I think in a way, it's how like when you see there's great sports commentators, they're the ones who have played the game or who yeah. have been in that situation. It's it, like you say, it's that level of experience that adds yeah. that, that, that adds to it. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely something with living experience. I mean, look, you look at journalists as well who have travelled all around the world seeing war zones and then they're back in a studio and people think, oh, they're really lucky just to have that job. But they've actually done their hard work travelling around the world, seeing everything, so they can talk about the experiences they've been through. And 
Look, with mental health, a lot of it does depend, I think, on, and this is as well my personal opinion, but also some of the learning I've done, is that once you have learnt experience, you can really empathise and work with someone because you know what they're going through. We can all learn everything, but going through something like that, like when I was talking to you in the podcast about anorexia, um, yeah. we didn't talk too much before we did it because I wanted to learn from you, from what you went through. And that's a lot better from my point of view than me reading it in a book because reading it in a book, you're detached from that person or whatever they're talking about because it's just on paper. But when you actually talk to someone who's been through it, you can really be compassionate and see where they've come from. Absolutely. And that, that's one idea I had behind my book was that a lot of people said, they say, you know, Connor, you're, you're very young to be writing a book. And some people might see, especially so slightly older people, they might see that as, you know, inexperience and, you know, what does this fella know? And my hope was, I suppose, in terms of getting through to young people, when, well, like you say about, about something people have learned, when an older person, I suppose, like, like that, or like, like a, I think like a teacher or a lecturer, when they speak about what they've learned, and I suppose I'm using college experience here, when you're in a lecture, you can often feel detached from you know, the person who's speaking. Yeah. And my hope was that through my book, because I'm still very young, I was hoping that I could connect with my, my younger readers a lot better because, I'm, like you say, I'm not talking from a place where I've learned about this. I'm talking just from plain experience. And, and I often hope that that's how I will get through to young people by still being the age that I am, but having had this experience. So I hope that that's what helps me, uh, me to connect with them. That is the, also the good thing about it is because for anyone around your age group or at, when you were uh, going through anorexia at 12 for children of 15, 16, 17 to read your book, that's going to um, connect with them a lot better than if they were to read a book by Dr. So-and-so who's 40, 50 years old. And, And that is your audience. That's where you want to target because you want young people to know that they're not alone. And these are the things you've been through. And that's what is so inspirational about you is because I don't think there are a lot of people that talk about their younger times because a lot of people just want to move on from it. And that's okay. You know, you've been through a really hard experience. Yeah. It is nice to say, okay, I got through that. Let's shut the door and move on. But what you're sharing is something that will help young people understand that they're not the only person for it to happen to. And that's really good because uh, as you said, when you went to see the counselor and you had your mom and your dad and your pediatrician and a counselor, For a 12-year-old, that is really hard to grasp. Four adults standing around talking about what's happening to you and you're giving information as well. Whereas if someone 15 who reads your book, then they can go, oh, actually, mum, look, this is, I've been reading this book and some of these things are happening to me. So it's really important. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That is absolutely, that that is my, that's my aim, I suppose, like you said, to show that experience. And like you're saying there about people wanting to close the door on their past in a sense, Towards the end of my book, there's a line where I say that I compare, I suppose, past, the future and the present. And I say that um, your past, in a sense, is it's like an archived portfolio. We look back on it, but, you know, we can we can never change it. And I say that, you know, it's, it's a case of no matter how difficult your past has been, if in the present you are, you know, as, as, as strong and you are, you know, someone who is empathetic and you're, you know, a caring person, no matter how hard your past has been, it's been a success in a sense, as in it's built you up to the person that you, that you, that you are today. I often hear people say that, you know, we don't, you don't have to be proud of your trauma and you don't have to 
look back and say thank you know thank god that happened to me you know our traumatic past can stay with yeah. us like in in a sense but we, there is great i suppose learning to be taken from our past and that's one thing i try and encourage people is if if, if in the present you are a kind and caring and loving and you know motivated person even if your past was very very difficult and it can still cause you bother yeah. it has built you the person you are today it's hard to be grateful for that but there is, I suppose, great power in being grateful and, and accepting of that. I've been around three people who have died through my life. The youngest one, uh, the youngest I was, was 19 when the first one happened. And, you know, it is a really traumatic experience. And you think, how will I ever get over this? But then a friend's mum uh, became unwell with cancer and I felt more prepared to help speak to her. And then when my sister became ill and then died of cancer, I was able to work with her and help her in her last few days. So these traumatic things, yeah, they're traumatic. And I mean, you you don't forget them, but they do prepare you for other things further along in your life. And at the time you think, oh my God, how will I get over it? And then another thing happens and you go, actually that prepared me for this. Absolutely. There's a great phrase to say, rather than saying, you know, why is this happening to me? It's a case of asking, well, what can this teach me? You know, what can I, what can I learn from this? You know, that's a great outlook to have. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, How long do you think your depression lasted for? It was, when I look back, I was, I was very much in denial at the time. You know, I, like I said, I I thought, okay, I'm I'm just heartbroken or I'm just this and that. I'll I'll get around this. It was only in some time later when I look back and said, no, do you know what? That was depression, and I can't believe that I didn't think it was because actually I had a notebook um, at the time. There were some things I wrote down, some I suppose thoughts I wrote down, and I, and I found it a couple of years later. And I think to myself, how was I in denial? You know, I was very clearly in a bad place. But I suppose the the worst of it, as I as I describe in my book, there's, there's a very um, vivid scene where, like I say, I'm at this house party and I'm having this conversation. There's a scene where it's the only scene in the book where I leave the setting and I'm in a bathroom on my own. And that that depicts my depression. And the, the reason I do that, is because I want to show people how lonely depression can feel and yeah. how, you know, you can have all the help in the world and still feel completely alone. And not that that's OK, but that, that that's to be expected and not to be afraid of what happens that, you know, there is a sense of lon- loneliness to depression. It is awful, but you're not the only one, you know, in a sense. So I'm trying to give comfort to the reader in that sense. It's not a very comforting scene, but it's, I suppose, help people relate to it. And I use this analogy of a, of, of a sink in front of me. And I, and I use that to describe in a sense, the hole I was in. So it would have been, I'd say two months where I was in a very bad place. And then I had this conversation with friends and that sort of lifted me out. There was yeah. another, there was, there was another six months definitely where I was still in a bad place, but I was, on the up in a sense. And the way I, the way I describe my book, I say it's not a case of curing depression, a case of, of fighting it. And I, I use those words very carefully. So the chapter where I discuss the very bad place I was in is called the crack as in I, I cracked and I, I broke yep. and the following chapter is called, is called the fight. And I, I try and use that change of tone to show how, you know, my life slowly did go on the up afters. And, and the way I describe it is if you want to fight depression, make your bed in the morning. If you want to fight depression, eat a healthy meal if you want to fight depression iron your shirts fold your clothes and I talk about how it really is little victories that yeah. can I describe depression as it takes away our momentum it takes away the spring in our step and for some people you know it can be it can be quite chronic they find themselves you know I've had people describe it as being nailed to the bed morning not being able to get up I wasn't that bad I was you know I was still able to 
function in a sense, but I was completely deflated and I would be usually very bubbly and, and I wasn't like yeah. that at all. So I regained this momentum, as I say, through these victories. So for me, as I said, the gym is a huge part of my life. I gave a lot to my training and I gave, I, you know, I made an extra effort to make sure I was training every time I had to, to make sure I was eating right. Yeah. And one thing I did was I was working in a bar at the time. So I started to dress better. So now rather than wearing football jerseys and stuff, I was now wearing shirts. Yeah. I was wearing jeans and good shoes. And, and I found, and people might've said, you know, they might've said I was overdressed, but I found a great sense of energy and a great sense of self-love from being well-dressed. And it, yeah. it helped me to, I suppose, regain some bit of con- my self-confidence was, was very shot at the time. It helped me regain that. And it helped me to regain a sense of energy and a sense of enjoyment in the day. So I, I describe the fight against depression as a regaining of momentum and it's, it's regaining it through small steps. Now, unfortunately, the way I describe it is that's a, that's a long-term method of, of overcoming it. That, that, that takes a number of weeks and a number of months. In the short term, what I did to not necessarily deal with it, but to, I suppose, forget about it was I started drinking. I wasn't really a drinker before this. I would have been the kind of guy I'd go out and I'd have three vodkas and that'd be me sort of for the night. I began going out with friends a lot more. There was, there was a social aspect to it. You know, it was going out and meeting friends, but there was also a more sinister side. I would never have said I had an alcohol problem. Yeah. But what I found is that when I went out and had a few drinks, you know, you don't think for a few hours. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not thinking about how depressed I am. I'm not thinking about my problems. I have five or six hours of a window here where I'm just I'm kind of free in a sense. You yeah. know, there's a, there's a, the way I describe my book is there's a numbness to alcohol. There's a numbness you can kind of, you know, like you kind of feel in your face a little bit. And I describe it as, you know, it was a brief, a very brief escape and escape can be a, a quite a sinister word, but that was how I forgot about it in the short term. And I say, you know, it's not a, it's not the right thing to do, but that's where I turned. And I, I use alcohol in my book as a symbol. As, and I say that all through school and all through college, I found this narrative that, you know, alcohol is a depressant. Alcohol is the cause of bad mental health. And then of course, drugs fall into that category as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I present a reality where I say that I myself and many other young people, it wasn't the case of alcohol causing bad mental health. That's what people turn to. And a lot of the times that's what they turn to because they had nowhere else to turn. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then what came from that was a lot of these conversations where I opened up to friends and they opened up to me, they happened while we were out. They happened while we were in pubs and nightclubs and smoking areas. And that's when I realized the correlation. When we have a few drinks in our system and our inhibitions are down, we open up a lot more and we speak a lot more. Yeah. And I think an old Irish phrase or it could be an old worldwide phrase is if you want a man to speak openly, give him a few pints and see what he says. Yeah. Because we, we do become more open when we have alcohol in our it's system. It's like the truth serum, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It's a case, there's, there's no barriers once you have a few yeah, drinks yeah. in you. And I, I said to myself, why is it that we have to have three or four vodkas before we start telling the truth? Why is it that we have to be slightly intoxicated before we start opening up? This analogy went on over a number of months. I came back to college in my second year and I suppose I was out drinking with friends and, and I was enjoying the social aspect, but I was still thinking about this. I thought, why, why, why did I find such relief in having a few drinks? You know, even if it wasn't very often. And why do we, why are we more open when we have a few drinks in us? And why couldn't we have these conversations when we're sober? People kind of go, oh God, when you talk about alcohol and mental health together. But it's quite ironic that 
it's alcohol and it's nights out that led me to these conclusions where I say, if there was less stigma, if there was less judgment, particularly for young men, yeah, then we be then the conversations we have when we're drunk, we could have them when we're sober. And like I think I said to you in a previous podcast, I had a few drinks in me when I had the idea, and I said, I'm going to write a book. Yeah. So it's it's a, it's a it's a peculiar relationship I had with alcohol where I turned to it to sort of escape depression, but I ended up learning a very the way I describe it is alcohol taught me lessons that I never thought I'd learn. Yeah. It taught me about stigma and it taught me about, about opening up and how if we could have these conversations sober, the world would be a much better place. But I think it's um, the alcohol, and they say that it gives you Dutch courage um, if you've yeah. got to do something. I think alcohol and maybe drugs as well give people that courage to actually feel maybe it lets down their guard a little bit and they feel like they can talk about things and they're not also thinking in their head. You know, they're not overthinking, oh, no, I can't talk about this. Their, their brain just relaxes more, and I'm not being an yeah. advocate for drink or drugs, but... Um, no, you know, as, not, as it no. happened in your in your way, um, it helped you to put your defenses down slightly so that you could open up with people. And, you know, that's a good thing if that's what you need at the time. I've often said to people who are suffering from anxiety, who feel like, you know, it's never going to end. They're always going to have anxiety. For some people, going to a psychiatrist and or a doctor and getting a prescription for six months is the best thing they can do because it will slow down all those thoughts, automatic thoughts that keep popping up in your head. It'll yeah. slow them down and give you a chance to relax a bit and then go and see a psychologist or counsellor because I think talk therapy is one of the best things you can do as well. But it just slows your brain down enough that you can actually go and start talking about your issues. And before you know it, you're off that medication. You might be on it slightly longer, 12 months, 18 months, but it just gives you that little break from all those racing thoughts. And I think that's the ideal way for most people. And I'm not an advocate either for taking anti-anxiety medication. It's what you and your doctor or psychologist think. But I think it does just give you that little stopgap to let your brain slow down and you go, okay, these are the issues I've got now. I can talk to someone about them. So it's almost like just slowing everything down, talking it all out and then going, okay, I'm ready to come back now. Absolutely. It's something... In a sense, they kind of call it like a, a temporary reality. It was good in that sense that you say it helped to slow everything down. And in, in as the months went past, my relationship, and of course in time since, my relationship with alcohol has changed. As in when I go out for a few drinks now, it's the social aspect and it's just the enjoyment. Yeah. But for those few months, it was a case of, I might have only drank once a week, you know, the same frequency as any other young person. But there was that sinister aspect of, it, it wasn't how much, I, like I say in my book, it wasn't how much I drank it was how and why I turned to it. But like yeah. you say, there was, it was the case of, so, and like we say, we're not being advocates um, for it. And, and some people who read my book, they sort of get thrown off by the alcohol and drug references. But what I say is, I'm not glamorizing it or glamorizing the lifestyle. It's presenting the reality that I saw around me and exactly. how, how young people uh, turn to and, it. And you being open and honest about what happened to you. Because I think also sometimes when people go through mental health issues, and you'll get someone who tells them what they can do. They don't often add everything into it because they think, oh, I don't want to tell them that I did drugs or I don't want to tell them that I had alcohol. So I just say that I took some time off and I got better. And that's okay to do that, but that's not actually helping the person you're talking to because you, you need to, like we said uh, in the first podcast we did, you're authentic and you're upfront with everything that happened to you. 
And that's really good because it's pivotal for people to listen to and go, well, look, this is almost a step-by-step -step of what happened to this guy and how he got through it. Um, and it's, it's also a great starting block, you know, for them to start reading the book and go, actually, look, this has started me off and started me thinking now I'm going to see someone, a counsellor, psychologist, um, you know, so it puts the thought out there and it, because it's honest and open, it helps a lot better than if you were to just say, I had anorexia, it lasted 18 months and then I got better because then people just go, Absolutely. oh, so you just get better from it. Well, no, yeah, then yeah. you added all your story in the middle, which then people go, ah, so look, he did have a problem where, you know, he had to see a counsellor, paediatrician, mum and dad, and that was a bit scary. And, you know, so it, it gives them um, an overview of what they might go through too. And if they are in that room with those four people, not to be frightened because you've already been there and told them that, you know, yes, it was scary, but I got through it. And they go, oh, actually, so I'll be able to get through it too. Absolutely. I think the word you used, I think it was in the first or second podcast, was the word transparent. Yeah. I think that, that's the best word we've used so far. You know, like you say, it's being open and being, as the word is, see-through about the journey. And as like you say, not leaving details out. I find that when I, when I listen to, I like, I like listening to the life stories of, of famous people who I look up to and admire. And I, I often think to myself, I hope they're not leaving anything out. I hope that this is everything. I hope there's nothing being left out here. Because I think there's great comfort in hearing everything. There's great comfort in hearing the entirety of the step-by-step -step because then you can accurately relate yeah. you know, your own life or you can accurately re re relate your own situation and go, okay, well, I've I gone through that or I, I know someone going through that. This, this can be overcome. This, this can, be, can be worked through. Yeah, yeah, and what yeah. I talk about, what I talk about in the book, um, parallel to this time, like I said before about Mumtum through achievement and moving forward, like I said, the gym and powerlifting was a huge part of my life at this stage. In the May of 2018, just as my depression was kicking in and just as I was on the downward spiral, I did this, this competition and I deadlifted, it was 225 kilos. So I, I was happy with that. Wow. And I was competing again in six months time. Yep. in the November. Now, in those six months, my, my battle with depression was in full flow. Like I've told you these, these stories in the last few minutes. But I had an idea, and, and this is, like I said in the previous podcast, about not being afraid to share your dreams and your ideas, no matter how ridiculous they may seem. I had this competition coming up in November, and I said, what if I can deadlift 250 kilos? That would be a 25 kilo jump in six months. And if you're already someone who is lifting for quite a while, that sort of a jump is not really doable it's not to be expected you know it'd be quite a, a miraculous leap yeah and the reason i had the idea was because i the competition was going to be two days before i turned 20 and i thought right if i can lift 250 kilos is quarter of a ton if i can do that before i as a teenager before i turn 20 yeah that'll be it's not a world record not a national record but it'll be a, a personal testament to me Yep. It'll be something I'll remember. And it, it's kind of really the highlight of my physical story. Like I say, starting with the anorexic teenager to being someone who lifts quarter of a ton off the ground. That's really where the, the physical story um, peaks at. Yeah. So I had this idea, I thought, right, what is it? And I remember saying it to a teammate of mine, I was on this powerlifting team. And he said that that's a little bit um, ambitious now. And he was, he, he, he was laughing, but he goes, he goes, go for it. But that's a little, don't, don't be disappointed if you don't get there. A bit ambitious. Yeah. But I, I said, you know what? No, this, this maybe this is doable. And I met so many people in that in the in that time in between who were going through their own problems. And I became very close to them. And I talk in my book, like we said before, about this idea of family. And as this competition got closer and closer, this lift that originally was about me proving to myself that I could do anything, this lift that was about me 
proving my physical progression, it now became something to a lot of people. Because in the build up to it, like I say, about speaking openly about your ambitions as much as your problems, I met these, I met these new people through college and I, met, and I became friendly with them. And I said, I have a competition in two months time and I'm going to try and lift quarter of a ton. And they said, they, you know, they were encouraging and they were, you know, they were so respectful of it. And they opened up to me about their problems. So by the time I got to that competition, it became more than just me. It became a family matter. It became, it became a matter that on that day, about 15 or 20 people I knew were waiting for the verdict. They were waiting to hear how I succeeded. Yeah. And I thought it was amazing how when you, when you set your sights on something and when you, when you involve other people in it, it's, it's amazing how, you know, people can be uplifted by one, by one moment that can seem so insignificant to other people. Yeah. It's amazing how one moment of, of achievement can help you and help others. And I described the lift and the competition and the moment in great detail. And it was a, it was, like I said, it was a heavy weight. It was a risky thing that it was, it was a risk I was taking. And I remember it was, it was me really, I suppose, taking on my depression and kicking it in the teeth when I got to this, this competition. I remember standing in front of the bar and thinking, if I can lift this, I can do anything. And if I can lift this, my friends can do anything. If I can get past this, this will be the greatest symbol of moving forward I, I will ever have. And I remember bending down to pick up the bar and thinking, if I have to be carried out of here in a wheelchair, if this does go wrong, I don't care because I never want to let myself or the people around me down. And it became a very, it became a very communal, I suppose, aspect. Yeah. So the weight came off the ground and I'll never forget having the weight in my hands and there's about a hundred people in front of me and there was applause and there was cheers. And I remember like holding it and thinking, I'm never, ever going to forget this because the last six months of my life from that in that year, from May to November, have been probably the most difficult I've ever gone through. And like, like I say, I, ne- I didn't think I would make it. Yeah. And I met it through the help of friends and I met it through, like you said before, but self-analysis and self-learning. And I met it through by evaluating and accepting my own life, my own past. And this is, this is going to be something I'm always going to remember in my, in my moving forward. It was something, it was a personal achievement that really helped me battle my depression. It was something to focus on. It was something to, to positively, I suppose, invest my energy into. And it's, it's something I'll never forget. And it really, it really helped me through that time. And it, it helped me understand why so many people who go through depression, they, they start cycling, they start running, they start walking. They, they might take up exercise, even though they may never did before. And yeah. it really showed me the positive mental effects of exercise. I had, I had always loved, like I said, I'd always loved sport, but this, this really was a time that proved me how much exercise helps our mental health and how having a goal and having a, having something to invest your energy into really helps your mental health. So that was, that was a huge part of my journey and it was a huge help in, in me overcoming the depression as well. Look, as you were saying that and explaining it through, I was there with you and I almost felt like, I don't know, when you see those movies where you can hear a pin drop just as you're about to lift the weight and then you hear yeah. the breath like, and then all of a yeah. sudden, and as you're lifting it up, you hear the applause start and all the, and it gets louder yeah. and louder. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And it, it was like that for me, like as, as I, because I got power, anyone who knows the sport, a powerlifting or weightlifting competition is a very loud event. It's heavy metal music and it's screaming and shouting. It's a very high adrenaline event. Right. But for me, as, as I walked up to the bar, it was very much a case of, this is me against myself. This is me against my past. This is me against my demons in a sense. And, and like that, despite how loud the room was, for me, it was like that. It, it was quiet. 
Yeah. You know, there was, there was, I, and like, it was just, it was just me and the bar. It was a moment I'll, I'll always cherish, but you like that. It was just one of those moments that for me was, was silent. Yeah. 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 Uh, can I just take you back to the first podcast we did about anorexia? Cause when yeah. I was talking, yeah. when you were talking then, I was thinking how a couple of people who I've spoken to since they heard it, they said that, um, you know how you lost all the weight and you were suffering from anorexia and then you gradually started to eat again and build up slowly. They yeah. sort of felt the same as me when I asked you the question about, you know, when you started doing exercising again, were you worried that you might take a step backwards? And they said, yeah. oh, you know, when he was talking, I'm thinking, oh, God, please don't say that, you know, it made you go backwards because you started losing weight again. And they said it was so nice. It was almost triumphant to hear that, yes, you could go back to the exercise. You didn't lose all the weight and you still continued to eat. And then you got on to play your football and stuff. So I just yeah. wanted to give you that comment because that was two Thank people you. who mentioned that um, and they were sort of like I was listening to you then I uh, sort of almost wishing you on as you're telling that story yeah. they were the same when you were saying about um, you were going back to exercise and they were thinking please don't lose the weight please don't lose the weight <laughs> yeah because it's the body like in 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 the like when you're in the underweight state the body is so is so fragile and yeah. I remember when, when I was at the pits of anorexia even trying to run like because the weight began to drop so quick, I was playing. I remember I was playing a game once, and I tried to run, and I found myself breathless. And I thought, "Is this is this my asthma? Have I got a flu?" And a coach said to me afterwards, "He goes, you weren't yourself today." And I thought, "No, no, I wasn't." And then as I got into the into the into the lowest weight, I could barely run at all. I remember playing one match where a, a high ball came in, and I remember I went to raise my arms to catch it, and my arms went up at that speed, like a very slow speed. And I thought, "Why can't my arms lift up?" My yeah. body was under that much pressure that I couldn't, I couldn't run for more than 20 seconds. I couldn't even lift my arms quick enough to catch a ball. Yeah. The body is, is so fragile. And I suppose there is a fear. You, we almost become afraid that the body will never recover from that physically. So I want people to see from my story that you can go from being the very fragile being like that to being back in full health and, and beyond that and being able to do great things physically, whether it's running or cycling or weightlifting, you, you can completely turn things around. So, but no, I'm glad to hear that comment. And I, I'm, I'm glad myself that I didn't, I didn't go back. I was, I was glad and I was grateful to, to keep moving forward. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I should have brought up these comments on the last podcast we did, but there was also a, a, a lady from New York who said that she'd had a battle with, anorexia herself and hers had gone a bit longer than yours I think three or four years um but she said like just listening to you talk about it and she's in recovery now she said a lot of what you were saying was what she'd been through too um but she just couldn't imagine going through it at 12 because I think she was 26 at the time and yeah. she said you know at 26 it was really hard but imagine being 12 where your brain's really just developing and you're starting to find your sense of self how incredibly hard that would have been on you. There was, um, I did a radio interview with a lady um, a couple of months ago and she, she's a huge advocate for anorexia and she'd be in her mid twenties as well. And I, I spoke with her as well, kind of off, off air about it. And like her, she would have been in college and she had her battle. And, you know, she said there was so many differences in our circumstances. Like I was male, she was female. I was only 12. She was in, in college. And she said one thing about, about being older is that because you've got that bit more independence, it's, it's nearly harder for the people around you because, you know, like when you're young, you listen 
when you're told you'll go to counseling yeah. when you're told to but when you're older you go no i'm fine you have more of a you know you've more of a, a firmness about yeah, you. you're advocating for so, yourself because you're a legal age absolutely. you don't have to do what anyone tells you to do absolutely as she was saying there was so many differences in our story like the male and female we were from different parts of the country but she said despite all the differences the story or the anorexia was the same. She said there was the same downward spiral. She noticed, you know, in what I said, there was the same patterns. Like the, my analogy of the monkey, she said it was the same feeling. She, and she said she found it, she found it incredible that despite the differences in our lives, the mental illness was the same and the, the details of the story were the same. And that, that for me was the eye opening as well, how even someone with a completely different life or like this lady in New York from a completely yeah, yeah. different part of the world, the story is still relatable because the details are still the same. So that for me is brilliant that people can relate to it, whether male or female. Well, look, we're still getting comments in about your uh, first interview. Another person said um, it's really great to hear a man talk about mental health issues and anorexia. It's so rare to hear a male talk about it. And I don't know if that's also uh, to do with masculinity or feeling like you can't share what you know you've got to be strong and oh I did this and I did that and and it would be something you don't want to talk about so yeah there there was a lot of good comments and people were really applauding you for coming forward and talking about it and I mean I know it's your you're a mental health advocate now and it's part of your life and you like to talk about these things because you want to help other people but it is still brave because there aren't many people that's why I picked you up so quick when you emailed me because I thought, wow, this is such an important issue to bring forward. And that's why we also had a chat before we did the first one. And I said to you, look, you've got a lot of different things you want to talk about that's happened in your life. Can we split it up into three or four podcasts? Because I didn't want to rush each podcast. And then people go, oh, well, you know, he started talking about this. And then, you know, you jumped onto something else and it was all done in like 45 minutes. There was too much information to do over one podcast. Yeah, I was so glad when you suggested them. Because in previous interviews, I've, I've been trying to rush in through my story as well. And I've been trying to fit this because in my head, I have an agenda. I have, to, I have to fit this in and I want to mention yeah. this. So when you mentioned spreading it out, I was relieved. I thought, this is great. We have a, plenty of time now, plenty of scope to, to reach all these issues. So I'm thankful to you as well for, for spacing it all out. Absolutely. It's the best way to do it. I mean, I did have someone say to me, oh, look, you know, I do have ADHD and 30 minutes is about all I can listen to. So at 30 minutes, I had to turn it off and I went, so go back to it. And they went, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go back to it later. But um, yeah, I, I think these important issues, uh, even from my point of view, if I'm talking to someone and I know I've got 45 minutes to get three or four topics in, you know, you're 10 minutes each because you have a bit of banter before and after. And it's like, I wanted to ask this or, you know, I think the audience would have wanted to know that. So both the podcasts we've done so far, we really got to, I know in the second one, we went a bit off on a tangent about something different, but when I sent it through to the sound editor, he said, look, you did go on a bit of a tangent, but it was really interesting stuff you were talking about. So it didn't matter. Absolutely. As long as, as I like to say, as long as it's an intelligent conversation and we come back to the original point, then, then all, all is good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. it is. All right. Well, what is there anything else you want to add to this episode? I suppose, like I said before, with the anorexia, the depression felt very, like I said, before, very, very final. It's, I suppose, it's, it's very, it can, like, it's very hard to see the light at the, at the end of the tunnel. And I think, dar- I think yeah. dark, dark is a very accurate word to describe depression because it just feels, like I said, for very lonesome and and very never ending. So, 
like I said before, with anorexia, who is battling with depression, lean into the help that's there. Don't be afraid to speak up and get help. But also, I think to, to really keep the faith that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that it's something that when you have addressed your past and addressed your problems, you, re, you, know, you really can move forward. It can feel very final at the time for me, especially with, that, with the depression, because the depression is so much more recent for me than anorexia. You know, it, it sort of stays in my memory a bit more, but I, I do remember it feeling very final and I'm so glad now to have moved forward. So never be afraid to open up and, and keep the faith that you will find um, light at the end of the tunnel. That's my, I suppose, final comment on that. Yeah, look, definitely. When I first had fibromyalgia, those first months getting into recovery and getting myself better, I had times where I don't think I was actually depressed, but I just, I couldn't be bothered with anything because I was so tired. Um, and yeah. I spoke to people and I said, look, this is how I'm feeling. And they're, you know, when they say, oh, we'll get better, you're sitting there going, oh, I don't think it will, you know, but it does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and things yeah, do absolutely. change. It's a circumstance you're in and things can change. So it's important to never give up. Absolutely. That's, that's the, 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 the exact phrase to never give up because I think the, there's, a, there's always, there's always a better life on the other side and, and the better life on the other side is often much brighter and much better than we could ever have imagined. And for me, I think that's definitely true. I, I never thought, I, I always hoped that one day I would recover, but I never saw my life being this positive where I can tell my story and where I have this sense of meaning in telling the story. So for me, the, the light at the end of the tunnel is a lot brighter than I ever imagined it would be. So that that's, like you say, never never give up. Absolutely. Yeah, and look, that's really great to hear. Um, and if anyone's uh, listened today and they have any issues around uh, depression or, I don't know, not feeling great about themselves, you can get help. Um, there are uh, agencies out there where you can call and talk to them free. You can get help with the National Health Service in the UK and I guess Ireland. You can here in Australia, uh, Medicare, uh, psychology appointments, counsellors, life coaches. There are so many people around nowadays and there's so much free stuff online like this podcast, which can help you uh, look at things in a different way. Um, and that's what I hope to gain from doing the podcast is giving people free information, listening to great stories, inspirational people, and to realize that, yes, there are ways out of whatever you're going through at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Connor, it's been absolutely brilliant speaking to you again. It's our third Thank podcast. you so much. We're coming back for a fourth one. I can't remember what we're going to do. So I think we were going to go into the, the bullying in more detail. I think we mentioned that's that. That's right. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll see whatever tangents we go off on as well. All right. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Connor, again. And um, I'll speak to you very soon. Perfect. Thank you for having me. Talk to no you worries. again. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you want to contact us, we're available on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we also have a website, lifechangesyou.com.au. So until next time, take care of each other and thanks for listening.